welcome to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Apolita Rossegno, founder and CEO of fine jewelry brand Apolita. Now, the word on the street is the fine jewelry category was a winner of the pandemic. So I wanted to ask Apolita whether her brand saw the same success, plus how the last year and a half has changed her 20-year-old business. Welcome, Apolita. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Did you see great that awesome success was fine jewelry selling for some strange reason? Yes, I know that. I think that was a bit of a surprise for us as well. Um, but of course, in retrospect, somewhat understandable uh, as people got more and more comfortable purchasing everything online, uh, even luxury purchases sort of went up the ladder, uh, the the comfort ladder. And, um, you know, uh, I've heard a lot and I've read uh, several articles that said that, uh, you know, jewelry and accessories were favored because so many people were on Zoom all day long that, you know, the only thing that you could accessorize (laughs) was earrings and... uh, but I'm not 100% sure that that really is it. Uh, I think that um, people had more time, certainly. And so therefore, the uh, time that people spent on the website learning about the product increased. And, uh, and therefore, the more you know about something, the more inclined you are to be, you know, to feel comfortable with that purchase. So I think that was a little bit of it. And, uh, you know, and then who knows? Who knows exactly? Yeah, I heard the Zoom thing as well. Also, I've heard, you know, it's if you're going to be spending, you don't know when you're going to go out of the house next. You want something that's guaranteed to be in style when you do wear it. Like it's timeless. It's it won't be, yeah, come and go trend. Is that it as well? Do you consider your pieces? Yeah, have forever timeless uh investment pieces. Yes, I mean my my line is has been designed like that from the from the start and uh, it's a very collectible line meaning it's designed to all go together so things that you bought 20 years ago are just as relevant as they are now uh that has always been not only sort of a design challenge that i have embraced meaning something you know designing things that are relevant at this moment but at the same time have a classic enough feel that you know at the time of purchase, whenever that might be, that you'll love it 10 years from now. Yeah, that makes sense. You mentioned uh, an a increase in online sales prior to the pandemic. What percentage of your sales were happening on your own website? Probably about 2%. Uh, okay. So we've had a very steep increase uh, to about 10%. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, we still have to figure out what the new normal is going to look like. I don't think that people are ever going to go back to stores with the same sense of the store being the ultimate authority. Uh, I think that people have become much more comfortable with learning and making up their own minds and therefore purchasing online. But at the same time, I think that uh, the experience of uh, touching something with your hands and and mostly discovering sort of the, the surprise element. You know, when you're looking for something online, you go directly straight to the point. I'm looking for a ring. I'm looking for a pair of earrings. And there's less of a discovery. When you're in a store, you have that opportunity to think you're looking for something and find something else. And, uh, and that is... Uh, part of the retail experience that I think needs to be nurtured and come back. Is that 
partially why uh, you still tell me, do you still team with retail partners? I think that I uh, first discovered the brand either through a Neiman or a Saks. Um, it was definitely a retailer uh, versus online. But yeah, who are your partners now? Uh, pretty much the same players, uh, Neiman's and Saks uh, and you know, Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom. <laughs> yeah. And lo- lots of, uh, and lots of independent jewelers, uh, who have been, you know, really great partners through the years. But I think that, uh, just like everybody is sort of wondering what is the new direction, uh, certainly for us, uh, owning our own, uh, retail is, uh, the direction that we'd like to take the business because A, we have, uh, learned a lot during this period about how, much more um, sort of direct and interesting and in-depth a relationship you can have when you actually know the customer and can talk to them directly. But with that said, of course, uh, you know, we love our partners and we've been with them for many, many years. And, you know, they, of course, suffered uh, much more than, um, you know, than, than we did. I mean, because they had to close their stores physically and, uh, and I think that in the, in the multi-brand environment, uh, I, there is, uh, sort of more of an expectation of the experience being part of the buying process. I've heard from other fine jewelry brands that, uh, you know, it's not a typical wholesale partnership. Like a lot of them are working on a consignment basis. Is that typical? Is that what you're doing? Uh, there's always a portion of it, but my, um, experience is that if it's exclusively a consignment model, it never works. So uh, I decided very, very early on and kind of by default, because basically I couldn't afford to, you know, that I said, you know, if you want to consign, then we can't be in business together because I can't afford, you know, to float your boat. (laughs) Yeah. But, but, um, and uh, to my surprise, they said, oh, okay. And I only discovered later that I was one of the very few uh, jewelry um, brands that they actually purchased. And, uh, and so what happened sort of as a sort of accidental, you know, uh, choice then turned into a real business strategy because I realized that if they don't, it, this is true sort of of all stores, if they don't really invest in your brand, then they're not invested in selling it. And, and so therefore it doesn't succeed as well. So it's not even a question of, uh, insisting that they buy it. They must, you know, for, they, they, they have to invest in it because then they have to feel like they need to support it. They need to learn about it. They need to talk about it. They need to, you know, continue to believe in it. Uh, so that, you know, it's, so it's more of a long-term, you know, strategy. Yes. Are you bouncing to some of these stores doing trunk shows? Is that still a part of, well, obviously maybe not in the last year, but is that typical as well? Is that a part of the process? Well, it has been, of course, a, a very, very big part of it. Uh, but what's going to happen go forward is not clear yet. Uh, we're scheduling uh, personal appearances for the fall and you have the feeling that things are picking up again, but there's also simultaneously the feeling that maybe we don't want to go back to the same craziness. Uh, and is there something in between? What's been your success with those trunk shows? Does that drive 
a large percentage of your sales for that store at that time or like in a time period or yeah, how successful are they? Hugely successful. And, but I think that we're unique uh, in that respect, meaning a lot of people have uh, successful trunk shows, but we have uh, a, like very, very, very successful trunk shows. And part of it is because the line is, is quite vast. And when you show up, with a real trunk, meaning, you know, hundreds of things and they're so colorful and so beautiful. And mostly you have access, you know, the customer has access to the jewelry in a unmediated way, meaning they can touch it, they can feel it. So the success of the trunk show is also predicated on the fact that they can experience the jewelry for themselves before they have to get into the conversation of price and, you know, so that, that's been always a sort of an interesting learning uh, for me, you know, to which was the motivating factor for completely redesigning the, the, the customer experience uh, in my store that I opened in the middle of the pandemic in Chicago. <laughs> I remember that you said this at the dinner the other the other month. So you just opened a store. So <laughs> when did talks for that? When when was the plan set for that? And were you kicking yourself? <laughs> well, you know the thing is that stores take so long to to develop. You have to find the location, and uh, as you know in real estate, it's all about the location. Uh, and then you have to negotiate it and then you have to design it. And, you know, that takes usually a year, year and a half to do. So we had started this process, obviously, before the pandemic hit. And when it, the pandemic hit, we were faced with the problem of what to do. Do we continue or or not? And uh, you're either in the camp that think thinks the world is going to end <laughs> or you're in the camp <laughs> that thinks the world is going to continue. And, uh, and so we decided we, we, you know, things maybe will have a slowdown, but eventually we'll pick up and we're so far down the road that, and I really believe in having uh, an opportunity to touch the customer, you know, in your own environment. Uh, and I was so excited also about this new formula that I decided to move forward. Okay, great. So what is the business model? How is this store uh, unique, or maybe uh, how has the model evolved since your original idea for the store? So uh, the idea for the store, uh, it's at 900 Michigan Avenue, um, which uh, is a luxury mall. And uh, so the space itself was a, a little white box. So the uh, the idea that we developed was let's treat this little box like a jewelry box. So we covered it floor to ceiling in felt. So you're walking into a felt box and then all, all the walls are magnetic and the jewelry is out. So there are no cases. And the idea is that you, you know, that a customer can walk up to the jewelry, try it on, look at it, uh, feel it mostly also, uh, enjoy it, understand it, be surprised by it before, you know, ahead of having a, a, a conversation with a salesperson. And, uh, and so by the time they get to the, you know, asking how much it is, they've already thought about what it means to them and how much they'd wear it. And, and uh, so it, it's a very different, you know, journey 
Uh, and, um, and I've always felt sort of sad about the fact that something that is so intensely designed and handmade and uh, relies so heavily on its tactile, uh, you know, effect, uh, was, it has always been penalized by being in case. So yeah. the idea was bring it out of the case and, and even take the case away so that the customer doesn't even have that experience to deal with. Uh, you know, I'm sure you've had that uh, yourself many times that you walk into a jewelry store and you just before you don't even walk in, actually, because you just think it's going to be too much work. You know, I'm going to exactly. ask to see something, uh, you know, it's going to be too much of a production. I don't want to do it. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. make somebody work for me and then I'm going to say I don't want to buy it. Then they're going to get ticked off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes, so, sure. so somehow it's, it turns into a negative experience instead of a positive experience. Yeah. For sure. So what have you found? It's within a mall setting. Is that correct? And um, yes, you're just, that's ideal for foot traffic and getting people, people's eyes on the store. What was your, your thought process for that? Well, I was very conflicted because uh, I'm European and in Europe, uh, multi-brand environments don't even exist and malls don't really exist either. So uh, I was, you know, really debating whether that was going to be a good idea. But uh, Gucci's across the way. I mean, it, it, we have great neighbors, so it's yes. not, uh, you know, we're, we're not uh, alone there. But I was uh, thinking, especially when we were debating what to do, whether to open or not open, I was thinking maybe the fact that we are in a situation where foot traffic already exists is going to be helpful. And, uh, you know, and of course, it's an experiment. You try. Is it too soon to tell about how uh, the customers are taking to it or what are the learnings thus far? Well, the learnings thus far is that people don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, really? <laughs> this is real? <laughs> you know, and it's just, you know, out, out of the case. Uh, of course, you know, we did have that uh, question mark ourselves, meaning are we just opening ourselves up to theft and, you know, and this is not a good idea. Uh, but I decided that ultimately, uh, I was willing to run that risk because, you know, to make a change, you have to make a change. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, uh, the reaction I would say is overwhelmingly positive. Well, on that note, I mean, not the sexiest topic, but I have seen like the security guard standing at the foot of the rebag store where they're selling luxury bags. Does that require more, more staff to oversee all of this? Well, I don't want to invite people to go stealing in yes. the store, but, uh, <laughs> but we yeah. decided to beef up the electronic, uh, the electronic surveillance yes. and not have a guard because I feel that the guard is another one of those signals that's, uh, you know, that, you know, A, you don't trust the customer, the, you know, like you shouldn't be walking in here anyway because, and everything is so expensive that there has to be a guard, you know, like yeah. I, I, I didn't like that uh, either, you know, so I've been trying to get rid of the guard for a really long time. Yes, that makes sense. Well, your Madison Avenue store, your original flagship, um, that's still around. Will that, will that also evolve potentially to this model or what's working there? Yeah. Uh, well, of course, Madison, the landscape of Madison has changed considerably in this last year. Uh, there are many, many vacancies. And uh, of course, Barney's is no longer there. And so one of the anchors of the avenue, you know, from 57 to 72nd or, you know, the sort of the, where 
the luxury stores are concentrated. You know, I think that it's a, a real a real question. You know, what's going to happen to that? I mean, I think that Madison Avenue is going to come back. I think that it's definitely, um, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But uh, just like our website, uh, our business during the pandemic was fantastic there, even though there were like hardly any people, because in that, uh, you know, in that area, you still have, you know, the, a, concentra- a high concentration of, you know, luxury consumers. Were people making appointments? Is that how you went about kind of phone easing into Phone appointments. It? Yeah, yeah, phone appointments. We did a lot of phone appointments. And uh, so when you look at the traffic count, you're saying, how did we sell lots of jewelry today when only two people came in the store? Right. You know, and uh, I must say that, uh, you know, your team uh, makes a big difference. Uh, and uh, their, you know, their sort of constant reaching out to customers and, uh, you know, doing phone appointments and showing them new things over the over Zoom was, uh, you know, was instrumental. Yes. Well, knowing the impact that your jewelry makes, like at a trunk show or IRL, and you're moving to the the online model, or you know, sales are going to e-commerce. What does that mean? Like, have you considered like uh, a try on at home model or some something where you can actually feel and touch the jewelry uh, through yeah, e-commerce? We're exploring different ideas uh, because jewelry is expensive. Everything is a little more complicated, you know, yeah. moving it around, wondering, you know, whether. So there are a lot of obviously ready to wear examples uh, of rental or, uh, you know, different formulas that are cropping up. And of course, we're always thinking, do those apply to us? You know, is that is is jewelry a candidate for these different sort of commerce ideas? And, uh, you know, and basically the answer is you don't know until you try. Uh, you know, I always thought, well, maybe there is a Tupperware party version of fine, you know, for fine <laughs> jewelry. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but I, we haven't exactly landed on anything yet. We're trying, we're trying certain things, but, you know, nothing has really emerged as the winner. All good. Well, talk to me about, I mean, you have, you have this amazing story behind the brand, your upbringing in Italy, and you saw the, this amazing craftsmanship all around you and this is all going into the into the brand and into your jewelry I mean how are you communicating that without yes bombarding the customer with content and losing them because yes too wordy or anyway how are you telling your story well I think that that is what the website is good for meaning uh all the information is there so if you if the customer wants to take the time to learn about me and the product and the brand and the aesthetic, they can find it in different uh, parts of the website. And I've decided ultimately that since the very first place that people look at for you is online, you know, your story has to be there in its fullest form. And we are constantly uh, working on uh, improving that. Um, you know, uh, again, like you say, like you sort of said a minute ago, you do lose the customer quite quickly if you try to have a selling experience and a storytelling experience at the same time. But if you do those things separately, you know, you increase the loyalty uh, of, of the customer because the customer 
if the story is online, they have the option of reading it when they want and not, uh, you know, when you want to, you know, serve it to them. So that's a good thing. And then um, I do a lot of, I have done a lot of personal appearances. And the format of the personal appearance is usually kind of a masterclass on how jewelry is made and how my aesthetic was born and uh, what the rules of design are that apply to jewelry and all these things. And when you really, and most people don't know a lot about jewelry, how it's made, where it comes from. And we, our jewelry is very unique because we make absolutely everything from scratch. Uh, we alloy our own metals. We cut all our stones. So we know a lot about what we know, basically everything about every piece, which is, you know, like, I don't have to guess it telling you how this was made or where the material comes from because we know. And uh, so there's a certainty attached to that that is very appealing once you know it, that uh, people are um, interested in the story, interested in finding out more about how things are made and, and always find it fascinating. And so if you separate those two experiences, the learning from the purchase, then you strengthen both. Yes. Well, what would you tell me are the touch points for that customer wherever you're telling your story? Is it, I mean, a lot of uh, brand leaders that I talk to on the podcast, it's like talking about TikTok and we're talking about Instagram, but where, where is your customer? Is it, are you still maybe investing in ads and maybe a glossy publication or where are you finding her? That's uh, always a, a big question, a difficult question, I would say, uh, because all these platforms are now competing for attention. Uh, for And do you follow uh, the customer where you believe she is? Or do you stick to your guns and stay where she will go find you eventually when she's looking for you? Uh, which would be, you know, do you stay in Harper's Bazaar or do you do TikTok um, or Instagram or and I've decided that uh, it's more relevant for us to stay where we are, meaning uh, to have a much more, you know, the thing is that the jewelry is, this is a self-purchase line. This is what women buy for themselves. This is not uh, occasional jewelry. This is not what husbands buy uh, for a woman's birthday. This is just not that line. So uh, a self-purchase of fine jewelry, you have to be ready for it, you know, and women are getting ready for it younger and younger. But it's not just a financial choice. It's I have to be, feel comfortable that it's not my birthday. I want a gold necklace. That's beautiful. It fits everything that I'm looking for in a piece of jewelry. And I'm going to buy it because I can. Right. <laughs> and this... Uh, this uh, state of mind, this sense of uh, uh, self-possession is, uh, is not something that is targeted to a young audience. So TikTok is not the right place to be uh, telling this story. And so whereas it might be relevant for Tiffany, because Tiffany actually does aspire to have that entry-level you know, price point and attract that kind of customer... Uh, for us, it's not that we don't have the thing, the, the items for that customer. If that customer does come to the brand, they do find those items. But it, it would be a little bit of a disconnect 
to try to communicate in, in a channel that is somewhat disconnected from the true core uh, consumer. Well, who is your customer? Who's buying the, the jewelry for themselves? Is she loyal? Is she buying a bangle and buying another one and stacking it up? <laughs> what do you know about her and her loyalty? Yes, uh, I think that that is one of our strengths is that it's a very collectible line. And so once you start, you stick with it because uh, it makes uh, it makes jewelry wardrobing very easy because like we were saying before, it's really designed to all go together. So you kind of don't know. The only choice is what to get. You know, you, you don't have uh, you don't have the um, sort of it's an embarrassment of riches and, and choices. Uh, and there are certain guidelines for how to get into the brand and what you should do first and what's going to really, you know, capture the two or three elements, the sexiness, the usefulness, the color, the sculptural metal, you know, the things that are key to the brand. And at this point, we know what the universal pieces are. And so we can help guide those choices. The brand's obviously very personal to you. I know uh, 2019, you reacquired or acquired your the brand. Um, what was happening? What was the ownership prior? And why was that important, that step in 2019? Uh, very, very briefly, what happened was uh, I was designing and running my jewelry business. And I had never initially intended it for for it to either be a business or to grow in the first place or to grow uh, as um, as vertiginously as it did, and so therefore I was really unequipped to deal with the growth. Fortunately, it happened over a period of time, so I did learn. You know, I was learning on the job. You know how to do everything, but then you discover that you don't love to do everything, even though it's very interesting. I do find the the commerce part of it very, very relevant because uh, it takes a lot for somebody to spend money to make that choice to spend money on your brand, and it's a very honest interaction because if you do something that's not relevant, they're not going to buy it. So. It really does keep you very connected to the relevance of what you're doing. Uh, and I decided that that was the part of the business that I was interested in. And I was not so interested in figuring out how to buy gold futures and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and how to manage, uh, you know, receivables and payables. And, and so therefore, at one point, I, I uh, decided it was time to get uh, a partner and uh, I was introduced to private equity firms and ended up with one. But I was not uh, experienced enough in, in what happens or what can happen uh, in these kinds of uh, relationships. And possibly, I guess, in hindsight, didn't uh, really dig deep enough, even into my own heart, to say, Am I okay with changing strategies if that turns out to be the commercial, you know, decision that that we take? And uh, and so what happened was that there was a little bit of a disconnect in, you know, in what they thought was appropriate for the business and what I thought was appropriate for the business. And so ultimately, it didn't work out because yes. we had, you know, different visions, even though they were very decent people and incredible, you know, in, in many, many ways and, you know, helped grow the visibility of the brand and, and a, you know, the awareness of the brand. But 
ultimately it, you know, it, it, we just had, uh, our visions were too different. So, you know, it was a big, it was a big decision. You know, what do I do? Do I take it back and, you know, kind of start over or am I okay just letting it go? Or, you know, like, what should I do? Uh, and then ultimately I just decided, well, I've invested so many years in creating this that, uh, it's better to take it back. Yes. How was that transition? I mean, <laughs> bumpy. <laughs> yes, bumpy. <laughs> I'm sure. Bumpy, but in some ways I was so, uh, determined to like get down to brass tacks, uh, again, and that it was kind of easy because I just, I, I just literally started over, you know, I, I kind of, you know, said, uh, instead of trying to fix, you know, the things that had sort of become muddled up, both in the messaging and the product assortment, I was just like, we're just going to start over. It's easier, you know, so it's taken three years to uh, sort of fix all the you know, uh, obvious issues of inventory and all these kinds of things, but we're in such a great place now. I'm, I'm really thrilled. Well, good for you. Can you tell me your your goals, your aspirations for the year? It's not a, a normal year, obviously, but um, yeah. What are you looking forward to this year? What are you planning? Well, you we on? have really exciting plans. Um, we're opening a store in Milano, uh, in Via Monte Napoleone. So, Hello. Great. Yeah. Center of town. And it's going to be the first, you know, I've been waiting so long to do this because women weren't ready. And, you know, and my customers are women. So this is, uh, you know, this is the right time. And I'm, I'm like so confident that it's going to work and it's going to be so amazing and exciting. And, and being able to uh, sort of pop onto the scene with a line that has had enormous validation uh, and longevity. So, you know, I feel very confident about, you know, the product and what we're showing and our story and everything. And I'm, I'm just so excited. Good for you. Congrats. And when you were talking about the Michigan Avenue store, you talked about um, what's key is the the perfect location. And then you kind of figure it out. What, what makes the perfect location and why was this new store? Uh, why was that great in terms of location? Well, Monte Napoleone is like Madison Avenue. You know, there it's like it's the street for luxury yes. in, in Milano and also in Europe. Uh, you know, one thing we found out was that it's the most expensive real estate in, in all of Europe. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, and, uh, you know, but we uh, found the space that was so beautiful and so compelling. It's in a it's in a one of the historical old buildings and it's off, you know, it's off a courtyard. So it has this incredible, you know, built in stage, you know, it's like theater, you know, all, all yeah. of Italy is like theater. And, uh, and then it has beautiful arches and, you know, it's just like incredible, like the bones of the space are so beautiful that it was kind of like, well, yeah, we saw a hundred other spaces, but this one was just so much more compelling that uh, we decided to spring for it. Yes. I mean, I'm sure it's not in the state of Madison Avenue, but I hope you got a little bit of a discount. (laughs) No, we definitely got a good deal. Although, you know, Italians are not as, you know, flexible. They're they're like, we've been here for 2000 years. Uh, What do you want to (laughs) negotiate? They're not nearly as uh, sensitive to the ups and downs of the market. 
Well, I wanted to focus on Apolita today, obviously, in my fashion and beauty world. But um, tell us a little bit about, oh gosh, Artemis. Am I mispronouncing it? And how the heck are you splitting your time? You've got two businesses going here. And am I describing it correctly? It is marketplace. I don't know if it's a marketplace model, but um, yes, home goods, uh, handcrafted in Italy. Tell us a little bit about that. And again, how you're splitting your time, because when you were talking about the transition um, between 2019 and now, I I wanted to ask you about the the team that you built that was necessary, but is, is getting all this done about having the right people around you? Anyway, talk us through it. Everything is always about people. Uh, People really are the, 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 core of your success, uh, period, end of story. I mean, that, that really is the story. Uh, so you have to have a good product. You have to have a good business proposition. Uh, and then you have to have good people, you know, and and then you can have a successful business. But, you know, if you're missing any one of those elements, it's not going to work. Um, so, I've been going back and forth to Italy, of course, my whole life. I grew up there. My family's there. And I work in Italy a lot, also on my jewelry. So in any case, I've been going back and forth. And I'm from Florence, uh, which is historically a very craft-centric town. And also a town that believes in art advocacy and in art patronage, you know, dating back from the Medici. and, And so that is always been in my blood. Plus I went to art school. So, you know, I was like fully steeped in every aspect of both craft culture, the maker culture and art patronage and appreciation. Over the years, in the last, in the 30 years that, you know, have uh, ensued between when I left and now, um, I was noticing a very, very, very dramatic shift in uh the culture over there and all these craft sto- craft businesses were closing. The internet happened. The world changed almost overnight. Uh, all the big stores closed their buying offices. Uh, and all of a sudden these craftspeople were completely left to their own devices. And because they are small businesses that uh, don't have, a built-in marketing department, sales department, and they've never developed that, that know-how. So they know how to do what they know how to do, carve, decorate, do ceramics, porcelain, you name it. But then that's it. That's where their expertise ends. So uh, I, I got very uh, upset about this uh, state of affairs and uh, and mostly when you grow up there, especially you're so sensitized to the uniqueness of these things. You know, like this handmade paper is so unique because all these, this, you know, know-how has been, you know, transferred for generations and it's very visible in the product. Uh, and so it's not going to be the same thing if this dies and then somebody five years from now decides to try to retrieve that knowledge. It's like starting from scratch. So, so I decided, okay, I'm going to do something very American style. I'm going to just like try to create the best possible marketplace that I can, which specializes in all the things they're not good at. Uh, a, finding the customer. And actually, one of the reasons that I decided it was um, it, it was 
it had a good chance of success, even though, of course, I didn't know, you know, what the, how, how to, how to evaluate that. Um, I was just feeling very urgent about the problem, um, was that I had been selling in the luxury space for so many years that I, that I know that customer exists. So it wasn't, I don't have to wonder whether there's a customer for this. I know there's a customer for this. So the problem was just connecting them, you know, how to get the end consumer who appreciates Italian craft, who understands it, who is not going to balk at the price because they totally, uh, have experience uh, of, you know, going to Italy, witnessing, understanding where it's coming from and are open to the story. So, and are willing to wait because the, because one of the things that I didn't want to do was burden uh, the artisans with inventory. So you don't want to say make 10 things and then what if you don't sell them, you know, like that, that wasn't the point. So it was just show me, you know, what you have. I will edit what I, what I think is uh, right for, you know, right now and relevant for the market. And, uh, you know, and we'll give it a go. So it was a complete uh, crapshoot. I mean, <laughs> I had no idea whether it was going to work or not. But one of the key uh, factors was finding the right people. So uh, I had... Um, you know, Italy is an amazing talent pool. Uh, you know, you find amazing, amazing people. And I found a fantastic, uh, you know, CEO, chief um, technology officer who is just phenomenal. Um, and it was important that they be Italian so because they had to marry the project. They had to really sign on to the idea because there was nothing like it. Uh, you know, and whereas in the States, there is a first dibs that you can look to and kind of know what that is there, there was nothing. And, and the hard work of converting the artisans to believe in this project, you know, that was a, that was a heavy lift, you know, because first of all, you know, if they're talking to you, they're not working. So they don't really want to talk to you, you know, and then, (laughs) and then they, they really don't want to talk to you when you start saying, well, imagine it's going to be a website and, you know, and they're thinking, who's going to buy my incredibly beautiful piece of furniture that's very expensive, you know, online, you know, they're, they just didn't understand that, uh, that mechanism at all. So, um, but anyway, to make a long story short, here we are five years later and there are 40 people in the Milano office. And, uh, in fact, we just got a new office, um, and it's uh, it's really been like an incredible success story. I'm sure. I'm hearing also. Gosh, you are <laughs> striking the right the right categories at home decor, furniture. People are, you know, I want to say hibernating. People are inside and they're they're decorating, they're they're zhuzhing, uh, while they're bored. And also, I tell you what, I've been watching my HGTV. There are shows where they're like redoing Italian homes and they're shopping the local pottery and things like I've been Googling, like, where can I get that? It's amazing. Um, anyway, you're doing something right. Was this a uh, record year for you? Yes. A record year, uh, yeah. a record year. Uh, we had an amazing, amazing. And of course, uh, that business was already set up to be a digital business. So we were ahead in, you know, in, sort of understanding how to find customers, how to capture them, how to retain them. We have um, 
very, very interesting and unusual statistics in our repeat uh, purchase, uh, you know. So that, yeah, it's just been an amazing, I mean, the, the you know, the ambition is you make the all the artisans so busy that they have to hire young people and that knowledge is transferred, you know, yeah. so that that is really the ambition of the project. And of course, you only do this by making them commercially successful. Totally. Well, speaking of um, odd stats, are any of those Artemis customers your Apolita customers? Is there overlap there? You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I would think. <laughs> I would think so too. But, uh, you know, maybe I haven't done a good enough job in like making that crossover connection. It would be a fun fact. Anyway, Apolita, this was so fun today. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful to talk to you. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to The Glossy Podcast. See you next week.